It's wonderful to be with you guys here this morning. Um, thank you, Pastor John. Uh, Pastor John and I, we go way, way back. Um, and I just want to thank him and the leadership of Crossway for enabling me to come back here and speak with you. I was here about a year ago, so I do recognize some faces, so it's good to be back here. Um, I grew up in Southern California. I grew, uh, was raised in Cerritos, and uh, before we moved out to Atlanta, we lived in Irvine's just up the road here, so it's always nice to be back here. Uh, I'll tell you this, there's no place like Irvine in the rest of the country, so it is a real, real nice uh, bastion of, of just a community here. Um, and uh, just a little bit of myself, I, I, as you can tell, I don't discriminate against food. Um, I like all food, and I'm about the biggest uh, Korean-American guy you might run across. There may be a guy, it's a few tall guys taller than me, but I think if you take the height and the girth, uh, I'm about as big as they come, 6'4". Um, actually, my sons keep on telling me you can't tell people that you're 6'4", because we measured each other's height about half a year ago. And I've always known that I'm 6'3 and 3 quarters. And they saw me at 6'3 and 3 quarters, and they started calling me a liar. And I was like, you don't go around telling people you're six three and three quarters. You just say you're six four. But uh, because of that, because they call me a liar, I always have to qualify that. Uh, I weigh about two sixty five. Um, that's in the morning. So um, at at evening after all the meals, uh, don't ask me because uh, uh, I know some people are like, oh, I lost five pounds. I lost ten pounds. I fluctuate five to ten pounds a day. So um, it's just part of uh, part and parcel of being a guy by size. Um, I'm married to a wife who's the exact opposite. She is five feet and weighs 97 pounds. It just kind of happened. Um, and I have two boys. I have a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old. And uh, one is graduating eighth grade and, and going to go to high school next year. The other is graduating elementary school, going to middle school. So we got some transitions happening here in my household. Um, but uh, as I've grown up here, I've been out in Atlanta now for 12 years. Uh, we started a ministry out there, uh, an English church out there. And then uh, about four and a half years ago, with the blessing of the church I was at, we were able to plant a church called Four Points Church. And uh, we've uh, been doing that since. And it's just been a, a wonderful uh, blessing to see God uh, move in the community over there. And, and contrary to popular belief, there are a lot of Asians in Atlanta. Uh, and in fact, I would argue that Atlanta is probably the third largest uh, uh, overall Asian population in the in the country. So um, we started this church uh, geared toward Asian Americans, multi-Asian, and God has been gracious to us. And, and if you guys ever get a chance, please remember us in our prayers. But uh, uh, about about a year ago, you guys remember the, the Pokemon Go craze? Like everybody walked around like this and falling into to ponds and what have you. And uh, the interesting thing about this Pokemon Go craze was that it was like more adults playing it than kids. But my kids got into it a little bit and uh, it was pretty interesting you know, seeing it. I thought it was kind of neat. But my youngest one at that time was 10. Uh, he really, it really rekindled his, his love for Pokemon. He loves Pokemon. So, so much so that, that he moved away from the Pokemon Go game to start to play the actual card game all over again. He did it when he was younger, but he started to get really back into it. Uh, he loved it so much that he would sit in front of YouTube and watch videos of people playing the Pokemon card games. I always thought that was funny. You watch a video of people playing games. But anyhow, that's what he would do. And he would study it. He would learn about it. He would learn about how to make the best decks. He would learn about how to make the, the most powerful decks. And then uh, he got so into it that he actually started to watch people just opening up Pokemon cards. I, I thought that was bizarre, too. But then I, I guess I'm the weird one because there's like 50,000 views on these, these videos where they just literally watch a person open Pokemon card decks. And, and show them what they got. But after about, um, I'd say a good 
three months of nagging me, he finally, I finally gave in and I finally took him to his first uh, Pokemon card tournament. And this is a, a big tournament. It's a sanctioned Pokemon tournament. If you win this and you can go on to the, to the, to the states and then the nationals and there's like world Pokemon tournaments and what have you. Um, but uh, I finally gave in and said, hey, it's not too far from the house, so we'll go. And I took him. And the first thing I noticed, though, was that there were more adults than kids. For every one child, there were literally 20 adults. And it was the most bizarre scene. And I, I'm just going to be honest, I, I kind of judged all the adults that were there. I was like, wow, really? But it, it crosses culture, it crosses age groups, and uh, you had an entire uh, uh, cross-section of Americana that was represented there. But anyhow, this is a really big tournament. Uh, he, we register. It took us a while to register. But when we register, what they do is they actually check your cars. They check your deck. They weigh it. They look at it to make sure that it's all authentic, that it's not, that's real. And uh, then they finally pair you up with uh, people in your age group. And so he got paired up with another 11-year-old uh, boy, a 10, 11-year-old boy. But you can tell that this 10, 11-year-old boy, he's done this a few times. This is not his first rodeo. This was not his first tournament. Yet he quickly realized that Micah, my, my younger one, that this was his first tournament. And this young boy, was a, he, he was a talker. He could talk. And uh, he started to spin everything. And Micah thought he understood the rules. Micah thought he understood how to play the game. But during the game, you can hear, see this other boy constantly telling Micah, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Oh, no, you can't do this. Oh, it's got to be done this way. It's got to be done that way. And I'm not going to lie. I don't really know how to play the game, but it really felt to me that he was changing the rules as, as they were playing. He, it really felt that he was altering things to, to take advantage of this, this other kid who's never played before. And Micah, he takes after me. He's a big boy. He's a big kid, but he's got a sweetheart, and he's just sitting there go, okay, well, I, I guess. And, and, and he thought he knew how to play, but this guy was so convincing that he's like, oh, I guess I, was, I, I didn't know the rules. I guess I'm I'm wrong here. And I got so frustrated, but, but what could I do, right? I'm 6'4", 265. I can't go yell at this like 11-year-old, four-foot-nothing kid. So I just sat there just incredibly frustrated knowing that I can't do anything about it because he was changing the rules, because he was adding things to it that didn't belong. He was twisting it. And, and the person that was being victimized in this case was my son, and the whole daddy instinct kicked in, and I was so frustrated. But I share the story because in the passage here this morning, we see something very similar taking place. We see something very similar taking place in the sense that there are people that are coming to the churches of Galatia and they start to change the rules. They start to twist things. They start to alter things. They start to add things that Jesus never intended. And so what's happening here is, is, is Paul is confronting the leadership of the churches of Galatians and say, look, you can't change the rules. But the, things, the thing is, it's not a child's game. It's not about winning or losing, but this is the gospel and it has eternal ramifications, life-altering ramifications. So what we're going to look at here this, this morning is we're going to look at Galatians 2 verses 15 through 24. And, and, and I want to share with you two absolute truths about what the gospel is and how these truths can't be altered. If we alter it, it ceases to be the gospel. But in order to fully understand this, we need to go back and, and read verses 11 through 14. So let me go back and read 11 through 14 for us to give us a little bit of the context and the background. So if you have your Bibles, let's, let's take a look at that together. And it says this, 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is another uh, way to say Peter, uh, I opposed him face to face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, even so that Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jew? Now, what's going on here in, in the churches of Galatia is that there are a lot of false teachers that started to, to infiltrate these churches. And these churches were churches that Paul helped plan some time ago. And he's heard these stories and rumors that these false teachers are coming in, and these false teachers are corrupting things. And the way that they're corrupting things is that it's not a blatant corruption. And I think those are the most dangerous types of corruptions. It's not blatant, but it's subtle. But that subtle difference is enough to completely alter it. And what they were doing is that they were not denying Jesus. They were not denying that Jesus died on the cross. They weren't denying that he rose again from the grave. But what they were saying is that salvation is not simply through Jesus, but you have to believe in Jesus and do this or that. They were adding things. They were slightly altering it. And in verse 11, Paul is trying to tell the church of Galatia, this is not acceptable. The gospel must remain pristine and pure. It's critical. It's vital to the Christian faith. It's so vital. And he goes back and tells a story that there was a time where I had to confront Peter publicly because he was doing something similar. This is a big deal. Um, it's like, like uh, Pastor John being confronted uh, by, by uh, Pastor Sam publicly in front of everybody. It's a very awkward. You don't necessarily just do that. But Paul is saying, I had to do this because this is this important. What Paul's trying to tell us is that I had to confront him because to do anything otherwise, to add anything to the gospel is to corrupt it. It's to distort it. And it's so important that if I confront Peter on this issue publicly, surely I will not let this matter alone to the churches of Galatia. So why did, why did Paul confront Peter? What was going on here? Well, Peter, interestingly enough, and, and, and here we have to kind of, it's like the movie Inception. I just watched it on the, on the flight here. But you have a dream, and you got to go within a dream. Well, you have to go to the context here, and you got to go deeper into a different, uh, another context to help understand really what's going on here. But Peter was the closest disciple of Jesus. He lived with Jesus for years. He learned directly from Jesus. It's it's. it's it's the greatest experience anyone can have. You, don't, you learn directly from the first person here. And Peter clearly understood what the gospel is. And so much so that Peter understood through, through Jesus' teaching and also the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that salvation is through Jesus, through grace. Works and circumcisions and eating certain foods and following certain laws has nothing to do with salvation. So much so that Peter had no problem hanging out and eating and dining with Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are considered, uh, or everybody who's not a Jew, and they're kind of considered defiled um, and what have you. But Peter had no problem eating with them to the point where it says in our, our verse 12 in, in, in the scripture that I just read that, that he had no problem eating with them before. Uh, that It says in the NIV, he used to eat. And the way the grammatical translation here is that it's an imperfect tense. So what that means is that he never stopped. He ate and he always ate. He had no problem in the past with eating with a Gentile. Gentiles. He had no problem with associating with them. He had no problem with hanging out with Gentile Christians until it tells us that certain men 
came to Antioch. And these certain men were religious leaders in Jerusalem. They were, they were established people. And, and I would argue that, that Peter maybe felt that he wanted to impress them. Maybe he felt that he needed to, to uh, uh, be rub shoulders with them and kind of get in the right. So what Peter did was, though all along he was eating with Gentile Christians, also when these people from the church of Jerusalem, these religious leaders came, he disassociated himself with the Gentile Christians, and only ate with the Jewish Christians. And even though Peter may not have verbally declared that salvation is through Jesus and works, salvation is through Jesus and being circumcised, Paul confronted him because he was saying, your actions spoke otherwise. Even though you may verbally declare this because you completely separated yourself, because you completely disassociated yourself with Gentile Christians and only associated yourself with Jewish Christians, your actions were declaring that salvation is through Jesus and circumcision. And I cannot let that go unchecked. Therefore, Paul confronts Peter. And what Paul is telling is, if I did that to Peter because he, not even with words, by actions was declaring that salvation is through something other than Jesus, surely I will confront the churches of Galatia if you add anything to it. To add anything to the gospel is to distort it. To add anything to the gospel is to completely make it what it is not. So what Paul is saying is that if I'm going to confront Peter, the closest disciple of Jesus, simply because he acted in a certain way, of course I'm going to challenge you and rebuke you the churches of Galatia for entertaining the notion that there is some other way to salvation than Jesus. So what I want to share with you are two truths that we then see from verses 15 through 24. Based, uh, a summary of, of what Paul's declaring. So what Paul's declaring is this. The first truth I want to share with you guys is that the core of a false gospel is justification by works. Anytime works is introduced into the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. It's a false gospel. But the church historically has done this over and over again, sometimes blatantly, Sometimes inadvertently. There are times back hundreds of years ago where the church said that you had to pay alms. You had to give extra offering. You had to give money for your salvation. There are times in the church's history where it says not only do you have to believe in Jesus, but you have to work your salvation out. You have to, to, to be punished. You have to physically suffer for your sins. Perhaps not as blatant, but for those of us maybe who grew up in the Korean church and Asian church, uh, there is an implied understanding that unless you serve fervently, unless you do the work in the church context, we question your salvation. Or for being a, a Korean-American pastor doing ministry in a Korean church, oftentimes what was implied is that, hey, if you don't go to morning prayer, we question your faith. And it was these acts, it was these works that really determined our salvation. All of this, though, friends, is a false gospel. When we add even an ounce of work, our efforts, something that we can add to the work of Jesus Christ, the gospel ceases to be the gospel and it becomes a lie. It becomes a distortion. The gospel, as many of you know, literally translates into the, the words, good, the good news. Um, 
if you're like me, I'm kind of a news junkie, right or wrong, or I know there's not a lot of good stuff to watch on the news, but for the longest time, our family, we didn't have cable for like years. Uh, we just got cable because it's cheaper to get cable with your internet than just the internet alone, so we had to get it. We had no choice. Uh, but for years, for about a decade, we didn't have cable, so the only thing that I watched was nightly news. That was my like, favorite thing in the world to do is watch news. But news implies that it's new. It's something that you didn't know. Nobody would sit there and watch the news or read an article about something that you already knew. The word news implies that it's new. The gospel is the good news because this is the first time in history that we are now told and declared that salvation is not by something you do. Salvation cannot be earned. Salvation is not because you obey the laws. But the first time in the history of humanity, Jesus declares that salvation is by grace, by faith. That's why it's new. That's why it's the good news. But these religious leaders... These false teachers were declaring something that wasn't new at all, but something that was quite old because they were saying, yeah, Jesus is real, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, but in order for you to be saved, you have to still obey the laws of Moses. You have to still be circumcised. You have to still abstain from eating certain foods. You have to still do these things in order to be saved. That is not the good news. That is old. That is something that has been taught throughout the ages already. This is what Paul's commanding. And in our own way, in our own generation, in our own culture, we have these same realities that we have to combat. Friends, what makes the gospel so beautiful and what makes the gospel equally so audacious is that it's not based on anything you do, but rather totally and completely a free gift of Jesus Christ. Anytime an idea of work is introduced to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel altogether. But we as humans, we're, 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 we're interesting creatures. Back when I was growing up, I loved free stuff. And anytime someone said free, I would apply for credit cards, like, like the dumbest mistakes of my life. Uh, at college, I would apply for credit cards for a stupid free mug or free t-shirt, right? Bad mistake. Um, but as we get older, when we hear the word free, it doesn't have the same power anymore. In fact, it does the complete opposite. When we hear the word free, we ask ourselves, what's the catch? What's the catch here? Free cruise, okay, what's the catch? Free hotel stay, what's the catch? Oh, it's, it's just a six-hour timeshare presentation. Okay, there's, there's always a catch. Worse yet, we think if it's free, then it must not be valuable, right? Who would give away something free that's valuable? It must be pretty junky for them to give it to us for free. So then the same thing then applies when we hear the gospel, the good news. A lot of times for us when we hear the gospel, we say, okay, what's the catch? What do you mean salvation is by faith? What's the catcher? There's got to be a catcher. It can't be that great if it's free. Jesus can't be that great if it's free. But here's the truth. What makes the gospel the good news is that it is free. It is by faith. It is not by what we do. It's not by works. This is radical. This is audacious. This is what makes it beautiful. The second truth I want to share with you is that the core of the true gospel is justification by faith. See, the true gospel at its core is that we are justified not because of what we do, but because of grace. And the word justification, it's a legal term. I don't know if some lawyers are here, but, but it's not saying that we're innocent. It's simply declaring that we are not guilty. 
And that's what Jesus does on the cross, is that he declares us not guilty. Now, one of the benefits or blessings, and, and i got to say this carefully of being a pastor, is that from time to time when I go eat with my family or my staff or by myself, and yes, I do eat by myself in restaurants, if I come across somebody that I know from church or from past ministry experiences, we say hi, but almost always when I go to try to pay our bill, it's already been paid for. Sometimes it happens where if they see me and I don't see them, I ask the server, oh, can I get the check? And they say, oh, that person over there, he already took care of your bill. And I look at, I'm, I'm looking for them. I'm like, what's going on here? And what's the proper response to that? The proper response to that is to say, thank you. Thank you for your generosity. The improper response would be to tell the server, you know what? I still want to pay. The server will look at you crazy. They've already prayed. Why do you want to pay? It's already been paid for. But that's what justification is, is that Jesus didn't just pay for my meal. He paid for my life with his life. And because he paid the bill, we are free to go and there's nothing to pay anymore. And it will be equally silly of us to try to say to God, let me pay. Jesus will look at us as why if it's already been paid. That's the gospel. That's why it's good news. It's already been paid. Um, the greatest lie ever told is that someone can be justified by our works, by the law. It's the greatest lie ever told. It's not possible. Let me just tell you, share you with a quick illustration here. In the Old Testament, it talks about laws uh, that, that talk about being clean and unclean. Now, one of the laws is that if you walk by a dead animal, whether you knew it or not, inadvertently or directly, you walk by a dead animal, you are declared unclean. You're a sinner. Now, it gets worse, though. If somebody walks by you and they have no idea that you had walked by a dead animal, and maybe you even don't know you walk by a dead animal, both you and that person are unclean and sinner. It gets worse. If a third person walks by a person who walked by you who walked by a dead animal directly or inadvertently, all three of you guys are guilty. It was designed to be impossible. It was designed never to be earned by what we do. What makes the gospel amazing, the core of the gospel is that Jesus paid for it all on the cross we have been declared not guilty. My favorite uh, uh, musical, and I haven't seen, seen Hamilton, maybe if I see it, it'll, it'll, it'll change my mind, but I love Les Miserables. Uh, I've seen it about, one version or other, I've seen it about six times. Uh, uh, several times the musical, Pastor Steve and I, when we were younger, we actually went and watched it together. Um, I've watched movies. I don't care how badly the movies are made. If it's Les Miserables, I watch. I read the book. I love that. And the reason I love it is that it's an incredible story of the gospel. It's an incredible story of grace where the chief character is Jean Valjean. And he gets arrested for stealing a loaf of bread because he's hungry for 19 years. But he's pardoned, and when he's pardoned, he doesn't have any job. He doesn't have an opportunity to get any food. So he, he snoops around, tries to get whatever food, and he decides, hey, there's a church here. Maybe I can get something from the church. And the bishop of the church sees him and invites him and says, hey, let me give you food. Why don't you stay for the night and get well rested and wash and go? Instead of repaying the, the, the gracious heart of the bishop, in the middle of the night, he gets up and he steals all the silverware, everything that he can fit into his bag and runs away. But as he runs away, the police see him, they capture him, and they return him back to the bishop. And John Valjean is telling the police, oh, he gave it to me, he gave it to me. And the police come to John Valjean and says, hey, he says you gave it to him. We think he stole it. And the bishop says, oh, no, 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 no. Of course I gave it to him. And not only that, but he forgot to take these candlesticks and these additional silver. He left it behind. And the bishop gave him more. That's a picture of being justified by grace. Of course, Jean Valjean stole it. But the bishop declares him not guilty. 
and in his grace gives me even more. Of course you and I are sinners. Most of you sinned on your way to church this morning. It's not that we didn't commit these sins, but Jesus is declaring us not guilty. Not because of what we've done, not because we can earn it, but simply because of his grace. And friends, that is why the gospel is so beautiful and so audacious. But that, my friends, is the core truth of the gospel, that you and I are saved by faith through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much for your grace and your compassion. We thank you so much for sending your son Jesus Christ down the cross for us. We thank you so much that we no longer have to earn our way. But Lord, through what you did on the cross, we have been justified. And may we never add to that. May, may we never take away from that. May we never distort it. But the proper response to that is to receive this gift in faith and to say thank you. And may our lives reflect that in all that we do. Pray for your blessing on each person here so that we can live as people of the gospel, freely liberated, worshiping you and giving you glory in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.